Chapter Thirteen of the Doctor's Wife by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Chapter Thirteen. Oh, my cousin, shallow-hearted. Roland Lansdell dined with his uncle and cousin at Lowlands upon the day after the picnic, but he said very little about his afternoon ramble in Hurstonleigh Grove. He lounged upon the lawn with his cousin Gwendolen, and played with the dogs, and stared at the old pictures in the long, dreary billiard-room where the rattle of the rolling balls had been unheard for ages, and he entered into a languid little political discussion with Lord Reesdale, and broke off, or rather dropped out of it, in the middle, with a yawn, declaring that he knew very little about the matter, and was no doubt making a confounded idiot of himself, and would his uncle kindly excuse him, and reserve his admirable arguments for some one better qualified to appreciate them. The young man had no political enthusiasm. He had been in the great arena, and had done his little bit of wrestling, and had found himself baffled, not by the forces of his adversaries, but by the vis inertiae of things in general. Eight or nine years ago, Roland Lansdell had been very much in earnest. Too much in earnest, perhaps, for he had been like a racehorse that goes off with a rush, and makes running for all the other horses, and then breaks down ignominiously, midway betwixt the starting-post and the judge's chair. There was no stay in this bright young creature— if the prizes of life could have been won by that fiery rush, he would have won them. But, as it was, he would feign to fall back among the ranks, nameless, and let the plotters rush on toward the golden goal. Thus it was that Roland Lansdell had been a kind of failure and disappointment. He had begun so brilliantly, he had promised so much. "'If this young man is so brilliant at one-and-twenty, people had said to one another, what will he be by the time he is forty-five? But at thirty Roland was nothing. He had dropped out of public life altogether, and was only a drawing-room favourite, a lounger in gay continental cities, a drowsy idler in fair Grecian islands, a scribbler of hazy little verses about pretty women and veils and fans and daggers and jealous husbands and moonlit balconies and withered orange-flowers, and poisoned chalices, and midnight revels, and despair. A beautiful, useless, purposeless creature, a mark for maneuvering mothers, a hero for sentimental young ladies, altogether a mockery, a delusion, and a snare. This was the man whom Lady Gwendolen and her father had found at Baden-Baden, losing his money pour se distraire, Gwendolen and her father were on their way back to England. They had gone abroad for the benefit of the Earl's income, but continental residence is expensive nowadays, and they were going back to Lowlands, Lord Reesdale's family seat, where at least they would live free of house-rent, and where they could have garden-staff and dairy produce, and hares and partridges, and silvery trout from the fish-ponds in the shrubberies, for nothing, and where they could have long credit from the country tradesfolk, and wax or composition candles for something less than tenpence apiece. Lord Reesdale persuaded Roland to return with them, and the young man assented readily enough. He was tired of the continent. He was tired of England, too, for the matter of that, 
But those German gaming-places, those Grecian islands, those papist cities where the bells were always calling the faithful to their drowsy devotions in darksome old cathedrals, were his last weariness, and he said yes. He should be glad to see Mordred again. He should enjoy a month's shooting, and he could spend the winter in Paris. Paris was as good as any other place in the winter. He had so much money and so much leisure, and knew so little what to do with himself. He knew that his life was idle and useless, but he looked about him and saw that very little came of other men's work. He cried with the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, and there is no profit under the sun. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. The thing that has been, it is that which shall be. Do you remember that saying of Mirabeau's, which Mr. Luz has put upon the title-page of his wonderful life of Robespierre, This man will do great things, said the statesman, I quote loosely from memory, for he believes in himself? Roland Lansdell did not believe in himself, and, lacking that grand faculty of self-confidence, he had grown to doubt and question all other things, as he doubted and questioned himself. "'I will do my best to lead a good life and be useful to my fellow-creatures,' Mr. Lansdell said, when he left Magdalen College, Oxford, with a brilliant reputation and the good wishes of all the magnates of the place." He began life with this intention firmly implanted in his mind. He knew that he was a rich man, and that there was a great deal expected of him. The parable of the talents was not without its import to him, though he had no belief in the divinity of the teacher. There was no great enthusiasm in his nature, but he was very sincere, and he went into Parliament as a progressive young liberal, and set to work honestly to help his fellow-creatures. Alas, for poor humanity, he found the task more wearisome than the labor of Sisyphus or the toil of the daughters of Danaus. The stone was always rolling back upon the laborer, the water was perpetually pouring out of the perforated buckets. He cultivated the working man and founded a club for him where he might have lectures upon geology and astronomy, and where, after twelve hours bricklaying or road-making, he might improve his mind with the works of Stuart Mill or McCulloch, and where he could have almost anything, except those two simple things which he especially wanted, a pint of decent beer and a quiet puff at his pipe. Roland Lansdell was the last man to plan any institution upon puritanical principles, but he did not believe in himself, so he took other people's ideas as the basis of his work and by the time he opened his eyes to the necessity of beer and tobacco, the workman had grown tired and had abandoned him. This was only one of many schemes which Mr. Lansdell attempted while he was still very young and had a faint belief in his fellow-creatures, but this is a sample of the rest. Roland's schemes were not successful. They were not successful because he had no patience to survive preliminary failure, and weighed on to ultimate success through a slough of despond and discouragement. He picked his fruit before it was ripe, and was angry when he found it sour, and would hew down the tree that bore so badly, and plant another. 
His fairest projects fell to the ground, and he left them there to rot, while he went away somewhere else to build new schemes and make fresh failures. Moreover, Mr. Lansdell was a hot-headed, impulsive young man, and there were some things which he could not endure. He could bear ingratitude better than most people, because he was very generous-minded, and set a very small price upon the favours he bestowed. But he could not bear to find that the people whom he sought to benefit were bored by his endeavours to help them. He had no ulterior object to gain, remember. He had no solemn conviction of a sacred duty to be performed at any cost to himself, in spite of every hindrance, in the face of every opposition. He only wanted to be useful to his fellow-creatures, and when he found that they repudiated his efforts, he fell away from them, and resigned himself to be useless, and to let his fellow-creatures go their own willful way. So, almost immediately after making a brilliant speech about the poor laws, at the very moment when people were talking of him as one of the most promising young liberals of his day, Mr. Lansdell abruptly turned his back upon St. Stephen's, accepted the Chiltern Hundreds, and went abroad. He had experienced another disappointment besides the failure of his philanthropic schemes, a disappointment that had struck home to his heart, and had given him an excuse for the cynical indifference, the hypochondriacal infidelity, which grew upon him from this time. Mr. Lansdell had been his own master from his earliest manhood, for his father and mother had died young. The Lansdells were not a long-lived race. Indeed, there seemed to be a kind of fatality attached to the masters of Mordred Priory, and in the long galleries where the portraits of dead and gone Lansdells looked gravely down upon the frivolous creatures of to-day, the stranger was apt to be impressed by the use of all the faces, the absence of those grey beards and bald foreheads which give dignity to most collections of family portraits. The Lansdells of Mordred were not a long-lived race, and Roland's father had died suddenly when the boy was away at Eton. But his mother, Lady Anna Lansdell, only sister of the present Earl of Reesdale, lived to be her son's companion and friend in the best and brightest years of his life. His life seemed to lose its brightness when he lost her. I think this one great grief, acting upon a naturally pensive temperament, must have done much to confirm that morbid melancholy which overshadowed Mr. Lansdell's mind. His mother died, and the grand inducement to do something good and great, which might have made her proud and happy, died with her. Roland said that he left the purest half of his heart behind him in the Protestant cemetery at Nice. He went back to England and made those brilliant speeches of which I have spoken, and was not too proud to seek for sympathy and consolation from the person whom he loved next best to her whom he had lost. That person was Lady Gwendolen Pomfrey, his betrothed wife, the beloved niece of his dead mother. There had been so complete a sympathy between Lady Anna Lansdell and her son that the young man had suffered himself, half unconsciously, to be influenced by his mother's predilections. She was very fond of Gwendolen, and when the two families were in Midlandshire, Gwendolen spent the greater part of her life with her aunt. She was two years older than Roland, and she was a very beautiful young woman, a fragile-looking, aristocratic beauty, with a lofty kind of gracefulness in all her movements, 
and with cold blue eyes that would have frozen the very soul of an aspiring young Lawrence. She was handsome, self-possessed, and accomplished, and Lady Anna Lansdell was never tired of sounding her praises. So young Roland, newly returned from Oxford, fell, or imagined himself to have fallen, desperately in love with her, and while his brief access of desperation lasted, the whole thing was arranged, and Mr. Lansdell found himself engaged. He was engaged, and he was very much in love with his cousin. That two years' interval between their ages gave Gwendolen an immense advantage over her lover. She practised a thousand feminine coquetries upon this simple, generous lad, and was proud of her power over him, and very fond of him after her own fashion, which was not a very warm one. She was by no means a woman to consider the world well lost for love. Her father had told her all about Roland's circumstances, and that the settlements would be very handsome. She was only sorry that poor Roland was a mere nobody, after all, a country gentleman, who prided himself upon the length of his pedigree and the grandeur of his untitled race, but whose name looked very insignificant when you saw it at the tail of a string of dukes and marquises in the columns of the Morning Post. But then he might distinguish himself in Parliament. There was something in that, and Lady Gwendolen brought all her power to bear upon the young man's career. She fanned the faint flames of his languid ambition with her own fiery breath. This girl, with her proud Saxon beauty, her cold blue eyes, her pale auburn hair, was as ardent and energetic as Joan of Arc or Elizabeth of England. She was a grand, ambitious creature, and she wanted to marry a ruler, and to rule him. And she was discontented with her cousin, because a crown did not drop on to his brows the moment he entered the arena. His speeches had been talked about, but, oh, what languid talk it had been! Gwendolen wanted all Europe to vibrate with the clamour of the name that was so soon to be her own. At the end of his second session, Roland went abroad with his dying mother. He came back alone, six weeks after his mother's death, and went straight to Gwendolen for consolation. He found her in deep mourning, all aglitter with bracelets and necklaces of shining jet, looking very fair and stately in her trailing black robes, but he found her drawing-room filled with collars, and he left her wounded and angry. He thought her so much a part of himself that he had expected to find her grief equal to his own. He went to her again, in a passionate outbreak of grief and anger, told her that she was cold-hearted and ungrateful, and that she had never loved the aunt who had been almost a mother to her. Lady Gwendolen was the last woman in the world to submit to any such reproof. She was astounded by her lover's temerity. "'I loved my aunt very dearly, Mr. Lansdell,' she said, "'so dearly that I could endure a great deal for her sake.' but i cannot endure the insolence of her son and then the earl of reesdale's daughter swept out of the room leaving her cousin standing alone in a sunlit window with the spring breezes blowing in upon him and the shrill voice of a woman crying primroses sounding in the street below he went home dispirited disheartened doubtful of himself doubtful of lady gwendolen doubtful of all the world and early the next morning he received a letter from his cousin, coolly releasing him from his engagement. The experience of yesterday had proved that they were unsuited to each other, she said, 
It was better that they should part now, while it was possible for them to be friends. Nothing could be more dignified or more decided than the dismissal. Mr. Lansdell put the letter in his breast, the pretty, perfumed letter, with the Reesdale arms emblazoned on the envelope, the elegant, ladylike letter, which recorded his sentence without a blot or a blister, without one uncertain line to mark where the hand had trembled. The hand may have trembled, nevertheless, for Lady Gwendolen was just the woman to write a dozen copies of her letter rather than send one that bore the faintest evidence of her weakness. Roland put the letter in his breast, and resigned himself to his fate. He was a great deal too proud to appeal against his cousin's decree, but he had loved her very sincerely, and if she had recalled him, he would have gone back to her, and would have forgiven her. He lingered in England for a week or more after all the arrangements for his departure had been made. He lingered in the expectation that his cousin would recall him. But one morning, while he was sitting in the smoking-room at his favourite club, with his face hidden behind the pages of the post, he burst into a harsh, strident laugh. "'What the deuce is the matter with you, Lansdell?' asked a young man, who had been startled by that sudden outbreak of unharmonious hilarity. "'Oh, nothing particular. I was looking at the announcement of my cousin Gwendolen's approaching marriage with the Marquis of Heatherland. I'm rejoiced to see that our family is getting up in the world.' "'Oh, yes, that's been in the wind a long time,' the lounger answered coolly. "'Everybody saw that Heatherland was very far gone six months ago.' He's been mooning about your cousin ever since they met at the Bushes, Sir Francis Luxmore's Leicestershire place. They used to say you were rather sweet in that quarter, but I suppose it was only a cousinly flirtation. Yes, said Mr. Lansdell, throwing down the paper and taking out his cigar-case. I suppose it was what Gwendolen would call a flirtation. You see, I have been abroad six months, attending the deathbed of my mother— I could scarcely expect to be remembered all that time. Will you give me a light for my cigar? The faces of the two young men were very close together as Roland lighted his cigar. Mr. Lansdell's pale olive complexion had blanched a little, but his hand was quite steady, and he smoked half his trabuco before he left the club-room. The blow was sharp and unexpected, but Lady Gwendolen's lover bore it like a philosopher. I am unhappy, because I have lost her, he thought. But should I have been happy with her, if I had married her? Have I ever been happy in my life? Or is there such a thing as happiness upon this unequally divided earth? I have played all my cards, and lost the game. Philanthropy, ambition, love, friendship. I have lost upon every one of them. It is time that I should begin to enjoy myself." Thus it was that Mr. Lansdell accepted the Chiltern Hundreds, and turned his back upon a country in which he had never been especially happy. He had plenty of friends upon the continent, and, being rich, handsome, and accomplished, was feted and caressed wherever he went. He was very much admired, and he might have been beloved, but that first disappointment had done its fatal work and he did not believe that there was in all the world any such thing as pure and disinterested affection for a young man with a landed estate and fifteen thousand a year. So he lounged and dawdled away his time in drawing-rooms and boudoirs, 
on moonlit balconies, in shadowy orange groves, beside the rippling Arno, in the colonnades of Venice, on the Parisian boulevards, under the lime-trees of Berlin, in any region where there was life and colour and gaiety, and the brightness of beautiful faces, and where a man of naturally gloomy temperament might forget himself and be amused. He started with the intention of doing no harm, but, with no better guiding principle than the intention to be harmless, a man can contrive to do a good deal of mischief. Mr. Lansdell's life abroad was neither a good nor a useful one. It was an artificial kind of existence, with spurious pleasures, spurious brilliancy, a life whose brightest moments but poorly compensated for the dismal reaction that followed them. And in the meanwhile Lady Gwendolen did not become Marchioness of Heatherland, for only a month before the day appointed for the wedding, young Lord Heatherland broke his neck in the Irish steeplechase. It was a terrible and bitter disappointment, but Lady Gwendolen showed her high breeding and her philosophy at the same time. She retired from the world, in which her career had been hitherto so brilliantly successful, and bore her sorrow in silence. She, too, had played her best card, and had lost. And now that the Marquis was dead, and Roland Lansdell far away, people began to say that the lady had jilted her cousin, and that the loss of her titled lover was heaven's special judgment upon her iniquity. Though why poor Lord Heatherland should be sacrificed to Lady Gwendolen Pomfrey's sin is rather a puzzling question. It may be that Lord Reesdale's daughter hoped her cousin would return when he heard of the Marquis's death. She knew that Roland had loved her, and what was more likely than that he should come back to her, now that he knew she was once more free to be his wife. Lady Gwendolen kept the secrets of her own heart, and no one knew which of her two lovers had been dearest to her. She kept her own secrets, and by and by, when she reappeared in the world, people saw that her beauty had suffered very little from her sorrow for her disappointment. She was still very handsome, but her prestige was gone. Impertinent young debutantes of eighteen called this splendid creature of four-and-twenty quite old. Wasn't she engaged to Mr. Lansdell ever so long ago, and then to the Marquis of Heatherland? Poor thing, how very sad! They wondered she'd not go over to Rome, or join Miss Sellen's sisterhood, or something of that kind. Lady Gwendolen's portrait still held its place in books of beauty, and she could see herself smiling in West End print-shops, with a preternaturally high forehead and very long ringlets, but she felt that she was old, very old. Gossiping dowagers talked aristocratic scandal openly before her, and said, "'We don't mind your hearing it, Gwendolen, dear, for of course you know the world, and that such things do happen. And a woman has seen the last of her youth when people say that sort of thing to her.' She felt that she was very old. She had led a high-pressure kind of existence, in which a year stands for a decade, and now, in her lonely old age, she discovered that her father was very poor, and that his estates were mortgaged, and that henceforth her existence must be a wretched hand-to-mouth business, unless some distant relation, from whom Lord Reesdale had expectations, would be good enough to die. 
The distant relation had died within the last twelve months, and the fortune inherited from him, though by no means a large one, had set the Earl's affairs tolerably straight. So he had returned to Lowlands, after selling the lease and furniture of his townhouse. It was absurd to keep the townhouse any longer for the sake of Gwendolen, who was two-and-thirty years of age, and never likely to marry, Lord Reesdale argued. So he had paid his debts, and had released his estate from some of its many encumbrances, and had come back to the home of his boyhood to set up as a model farmer and country gentleman. So in the bright July sunshine Gwendolen and her cousin lounged upon the lawn, and talked of old pleasures and old acquaintances, and the things that had happened to them when they were young. If the lady ever cherished any hope that Roland would return to his allegiance, that hope was now utterly vanished. He has forgiven her for all the past, and they are friends and first cousins again, but there is no room for hope that they can ever be again what they have been. A man who can forgive so generously must have long ceased to love. That strange madness, so nearly allied to hatred, and jealousy and rage and despair, has no kindred with forgiveness. Lady Gwendolen knew that her chance was gone. She knew this, and there was a secret bitterness in her heart when she thought of it, and she was jealous of her cousin's regard, and exacting in her manner to him. He bore it all with imperturbable good temper. He had been hot-headed and fiery-tempered long ago, when he was young and chivalrous and eager to be useful to his fellow-creatures, but now he was only a languid loiterer upon the earth, and his creed was the creed of the renowned American, who has declared that there is nothing new and nothing true, and it don't signify. What did it matter? The crooked sticks would never be straight. That which was wanting would never be numbered. Roland Lansdell suffered from a milder form of that disease, in a wild paroxysm of which Swift wrote Gulliver, and Byron horrified society with Don Juan. He suffered from that moody desperation of mind which came upon Hamlet after his mother's wedding, and neither man nor woman delighted him. But do not suppose that this young man gave himself melancholy or Byronic airs upon the strength of the aching void at his own weary heart. He was a sensible young man, and he did not pose himself a la Lara, or turn his collars, or let his beard grow. He only took life very easily, and was specially indulgent to the follies and vices of people from whom he expected so very little. He had gone back to Midlandshire because he was tired of his continental wanderings, and now he was tired of Mordred already, before he had been back a week. Lady Gwendolen catechized him rather closely as to what he had done with himself upon the previous afternoon, and he told her very frankly that he had strolled into Hurstonleigh Grove to see Mr. Raymond, and had spent an hour or two talking with his old friend, while Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert and the children enjoyed themselves, and prepared a rustic tea, which would have been something like Watteau if Watteau had been a Dutchman. "'It was very pretty, Gwendolen, I assure you,' he said. "'Mrs. Gilbert made tea, and we drank it in a scalding state.' and the two children were all of a greasy radiance with bread and butter. The doctor seems to be an excellent fellow. His moral region is something tremendous, Raymond tells me. 
and he entertained us at tea with a most interesting case of fester. "'Oh, the doctor, that's Mr. Gilbert, is it not?' said Lady Gwendolen. "'And what do you think of his wife, Roland? You must have formed some opinion upon that subject, I should think, by the manner in which you stared at her.' "'Did I stare at her?' cried Mr. Lansdell, with supreme carelessness. "'I dare say I did. I always stare at pretty women.' Why should a man go into all manner of stereotyped raptures about a Raffaello or a Guido, and yet feel no honest thrill of disinterested admiration when he looks at a picture fresh from the hands of the supreme painter, Nature, who, by the way, makes as many failures, and is as often out of drawing, as any other artist? Yes, I admire Mrs. Gilbert, and I like to look at her. I don't suppose she's any better than other people, but she's a great deal prettier, a beautiful piece of animated waxwork, with a little machinery inside, just enough to make her say, yes, if you please, and no, thank you, a lovely non-entity with yellow-black eyes. Did you observe her eyes? No, Lady Gwendolen answered sharply. I observed nothing except that she was a very dowdy-looking person. "'What, in heaven's name, is Mr. Raymond's motive for taking her up? "'He's always taking up some extraordinary person.' "'But Mrs. Gilbert is not an extraordinary person. "'She's very stupid and commonplace. "'She was nursery-maid or nursery-governess or something of that kind "'to that dear good Raymond's penniless nieces.' "'There was no more said about Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert.' Lady Gwendolen did not care to talk about these common people who came across her dull pathway and robbed her of some few accidental rays of that light which was now the only radiance upon earth for her, the light of her cousin's presence. Ah, me, with what a stealthy step, invisible in the early sunshine, pitiless nemesis creeps after us and glides past us and goes on before to wait for us upon the other side of the hill amidst the storm-clouds and the darkness from the very first gwendolen had loved her cousin roland better than any other living creature upon this earth but the chance of bringing down the bird at whose glorious plumage so many a fair fowler had levelled her rifle had dazzled and tempted her the true wine of life was not that mawkish sickly sweet compound of rose-leaves and honey called love but an effervescing intoxicating beverage known as success lady gwendolen had thought and in the triumph of her splendid conquest it seemed such an easy thing to resign the man she loved but now it was all different she looked back and remembered what her life might have been she looked forward and saw what it was to be, and the face of Nemesis was very terrible to look upon. Thus it was that Lady Gwendolen was exacting of her cousin's attention, impatient of his neglect. Oh, if she could only have brought him back, if she could have kindled a new flame in the cold embers, alas, she knew that to do that would be to achieve the impossible. She looked in the glass, and saw that her aristocratic beauty was pale and faded. She felt that the story of her life was ended. The sea might break against the crags for ever and ever, but the tender grace of a day that was dead could never return to her. "'He loved me once,' 
she thought, as she sat in the summer twilight watching her cousin stroll on the lawn, smoking his after-dinner cigar, and looking so tired, so tired of himself and everything in the world. He loved me once. It is something to remember that. The day was very dull at Lowlands, Mr. Lansdell thought. There was a handsome house, a little old and faded, but very handsome notwithstanding, and there was a well-cooked dinner and good wines, and there was an elegant and accomplished woman always ready to talk to him and amuse him, and yet, somehow, it was all flat, stale, and unprofitable to this young man, who had lived the same kind of life for ten years, and had drained its pleasures to the very dregs. We should laugh at a man who went on writing epic poems all of his life, though people refused to read a line of his poetry, and no man can be expected to go on trying to improve the position of people who don't want to be improved. I've tried my hand at the working man, and he has rejected me as an intrusive nuisance. I've no doubt he was in his right. How should I like a reformer who wanted to set me straight, and lay out my leisure hours by line and rule, and spend my money for me, and show me how to get mild Turkish and German wines in the best and cheapest market? Mr. Lansdell often thought about his life. It is not natural that a man, originally well disposed, should lead a bad and useless life without thinking of it. Mr. Lansdell was subject to gloomy fits of melancholy, in which the present seemed a burden, and the future a blank, a great blank desert, or a long dreary bridge, like that which the genius showed to Mirza in his morning vision, with dreadful pitfalls every here and there, down which unwary foot-passengers sank, engulfed in the dreadful blackness of a bottomless ocean. End of chapter 13 Recording by Kirsten Weber